Please open your Bibles to Psalm. We'll be looking at Psalm number 11. Psalm number 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds the upright shall behold his face. So far to the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if your options were flight or fight, if a trial or tribulation presented itself before you, have you ever thought what your decision might be? Have you ever thought about how you would determine if you should stay or if you should go? Now with the size of the struggle and the affliction impact your choice on whether you should stay or whether you should go. See, David is confronted with a choice. With the uncertainty and the threat of affliction, does he stay or does he go? So our theme this morning as we examine Scripture is this. Should I stay or should I go? We'll look at this two points. Confession of faith amid the antagonizers. And point number two, reaffirmation in the refuge. See, right from verse one, David confesses that the Lord is his refuge. Now, saying that the Lord is your refuge is easily done. Anyone can do it. The difficulty lies in believing what you're saying and trusting in what you're saying. So yet for David, this confession was something David said, but also something David put into practice. Remember what he said to Saul concerning Goliath. 
the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, David puts his faith in the Lord for his refuge and for his deliverance. And he was rewarded for, with his faith. He defeated Goliath. Because of David's faith in the Lord, he could do what everyone else feared to do. See, now in this particular instance, in Psalm 11 here, there were those around David trying to derail his faith. They were trying to plant a seed of doubt in his mind. Now these doubters were either fearful themselves, afraid, advocating for David to take flight and flee from this situation, or it's a sarcastic attack from scoffers trying to undermine David's faith and confidence in the Lord. The commentator points out to the, probably the case of being the latter, that these antagonizers are the sarcastic scoffers because the attack is aimed at the soul of David. The attack is at the totality of David's person. It's physical and spiritual. This was not merely an idea or good advice for David to listen to from the mouth of wise counsel or from, concer from concerned friends. No, David's being assaulted by the naysayers, trying to sabotage David's faith that David's faith is that the Lord is his refuge. The scoffers are telling David to flee, to cower, to run. The imagery here is that of a bird flying to a mountain somewhere high and out of the reach of danger. It could mean David fleeing and taking the most direct route to his safe haven. A similar expression would be as the crow flies. It takes the least amount of resistance to get to your destination, the most direct route. As a bird, you're not limited by a trail or there's no obstacles that you need to avoid, no traffic jams or rush hour. It's direct. So the expression could rely on the urgency with which David should move. Or, the scoffers are reiterating that David is to flee because he is as helpless as a bird. Not an eagle or a hawk of some ferocious bird of prey, but a pigeon, an insignificant bird of small stature. So no one perceives a pigeon to be a threat. The scoffers say that David is weak and feeble, of no threat, and should merely hide from the incoming danger. And notice the direction that they point David. It's not to his God, but to a mountain. There's intentionality to point David in a direction that is anywhere but toward God. They do not acknowledge that David has a God or that 
it is a viable option for him, but they point him elsewhere. A ploy that has confused Christians for ages when the world points them anywhere but towards their God. The world uses smoke and mirrors. Look everywhere else for your answers. Instead of at your God. They believe the refuge is found in the wisdom of man, not God. From a mountain vantage point, not under the wing of your God. Take your eye off of him and place it on something else, they say. And what is driving the scoffers to push David up that mountain? Still quoting the scoffers, David recounts the threat headed his way. The threat is the wicked. And as a commentator points out, a clever way to analyze this threat of the wicked with their might, their method, and their menace. See, first David recalls the might of his foes. His attack is not from someone with soft hands and eloquent words, but from the wicked with the strength to bend the bow. Not only to draw the bow, but also to string it. These are men of war. They have the resources to create weapons for destruction. But also the knowledge to know how to use them. The bow is not a sword. A sword can be easily inflict damage. But a bow takes skill crafted over hours of training. You can't just swing it around like a sword and inflict damage. The wicked are a certain threat as they have fixed their arrow to the string. Next, it's the wicked's method that illustrates much about their character. They're not honest or forthcoming with their attacks. They're not looking for an honest fight. They're not worried about what is honorable or concerned about the rules of engagement. They're lurking in the shadows, hiding. They're using the darkness to conceal their actions, to hide their plans and intentions. Deceitful and conniving are their ways of operation, the same way their master Satan operates. See, the might and the method of the wicked are designed to instill fear and terror into the uprighted heart. And just like their master Satan, their desired target is the upright in heart. Their desired outcome is to leave them in ruins. The menacing question of the wicked is this. What shields the righteous if their foundations are laid to ruin? In the minds of the wicked, what shelters the upright in heart? It's not their God, because in their minds, who is that? Instead, what shelters the upright 
when society is ruined, the dignity of life is casually ignored, and justice and righteousness and equity are all removed. When it's just the raw law of might, when it's power and force that are in control, who protects the poor in spirit? Who protects the meek, the upright, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? When society is turned upside down and it's every man and woman for themselves, who protects them? See, the wicked remind David of how small he is or his nation relative to those that surround it. See, they're trying to convince that David is best served looking after himself and after his own self-interest. But is self-interest the best option? Scripture informs of the different mountains men of Scripture have turned to. If you remember Jonah, he tried to hide from God. His mountain was at the bottom of that ship. Or if you remember King Ahaz recently, his mountain was Assyria. But for these men, did their mountain turn out to be a place of refuge? Or was it a place of harm? place of ruin. See, David resists the temptation to flee to the mountain when the threat of societal collapse becomes a reality. Instead, David doubles down on his earlier profession and reminds himself and the generations to come of those who need to be reminded of where their refuge is. David takes you away from the mountain to something far greater. In verse 4, David declares, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne room is in heaven. And this might remind you of that scene depicted by Isaiah in chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne lifted and high, where the train of His robe filled the temple, where the words of the seraphim rang in His ears, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or you can almost feel the foundations shake from the voice of the One who called. But Isaiah was not a contemporary of David but still paints a similar picture. In verse 4, the picture that is painted is the Lord in His holy temple. It could be that David is illustrating for us the eminence of God. That is, that He is a God who draws near to His people. 
He's not a hands-off God who does not enter into creation. You see this in many different ways in Scripture. God appears to men in dreams and visions. The burning bush or in human forms like that before Abraham and also Jacob. But these are just prefigures and foreshadows of the ultimate arrival of the Son of God when He took on flesh and dwelt among His people. Truly God, truly man, God entered into history because He cares for His people. He drew so near to you that He took on flesh and looked just like you. Because that was the only way for your deliverance. You see, He did not shrink back into His divinity to conquer sin or overcome weakness. Still in His humanity, He suffered for you. Both physically, in all the pain and anguish that He went through but also in his soul, so much that he sweat drops of blood for the anticipation of the distress that he was about to endure for his bride. And he knows exactly what life is like for you. God incarnate experienced suffering just like you. But also, David calls this temple holy. And this alludes to the fact that God is distant and set apart from His creation. That there is nothing earthly or physical that can profane His dwelling place. Even though He dwells amongst His people, He is still distinct and set apart from them. Next, David illustrates that the Lord's reign is not limited to Israel or the countries in the ancient Near East, nor is He subject to earthly institutions or human plans. The Lord has cosmic reign over the totality of His creation. His throne is not limited to a geographical area Rather, every molecule that makes up this universe is subject to His authority. There's nothing outside of His reign. And also, He rules with a complete knowledge and wisdom. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. His wisdom and thoughts are so great that to count them would be more than the sand of all the earth. How vast is the sum of his thoughts? Yet you experience that the Lord is not bound by limitations when you read about the miraculous work of Christ. Christ's ability passes beyond the human experience. He commands the winds and the waves to be still, He heals the sick of their diseases. The dead rise from the mere power of His voice. 
Not only does the Lord's throne in heaven convey a cosmic reign over his creation accompanied by wisdom and power that knows no limits, but it illustrates that the Lord has a vantage point unlike any other king, any other ruler. He is a heavenly one. This means that he sees that the wicked are bending the bow. He sees through the darkness and knows that the wicked lurk in the shadows. There's no escape from the eyes of the Lord. David further explains this when he says, the Lord's eyelids testing the children of men. Now to our ears, that might sound like a peculiar illustration, but it conveys a gaze or a focus. Maybe it's even helpful to think of a squinting eye focusing and looking. There's an examination, a concentrated focus from the eyes of the Lord. So it's not merely that God sees what is happening in this world, but there's a thoughtful consideration of what is happening. Again, we understand these things, these descriptions of God as anthropomorphic, which means when you ascribe human features to God so that we can better understand in our minds who God is and what He's like. So because God has the power to see everything that happens in creation, and not only does he see what's happening, but he looks all that unfolds with an examining eye. He examines them with a focus and discerns their actions, which makes him a judge who can justly judge because he rightly calculates the actions of all of his creation. Verse 5 there states that the Lord tests the righteous. And you might wonder to yourself, who are these tests for? Are these tests for God? As if God is an insecure and needs to know that if you love him? Now, if that's your view of God, it sounds like high school drama that all. God is, is an immature teenager. No, remember, God is self-existent. He needs nothing from you. He does not depend upon anything or anyone. He does not need your love because he himself is love. So then the test must be for you. But why? The test is for you to understand that God is who He says He is. That you can trust and believe in Him, that you have a refuge in Him. See, He already knows this about Himself, and He already knows everything about you. But you do not know this about Him nor do you know it about yourself. Listen to the words of Psalm 66, verse 10 through 12. 
For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You have laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Do you know this about your God? That when you go through trials and tribulations, when you experience afflictions, that God is the one who brings you out the other side. So you can say that God is your refuge, but is that what you believe in your heart of hearts? Do you really believe that? How do you know that to be the case? See, your words are merely a theory, a simply a hypothesis. Your trial, your affliction, that's where it becomes applied theory. This is where the rubber meets the road. It determines if you are who you say you are. And this is the example given in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you for these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See, God knows the answer to all these questions. But do you know what's in your heart? Do you know how you will answer those questions? When you're faced with that question, to flee to the mountain or to find refuge in God. See, it's only through affliction and trials do you know the answer to those questions. And if you fail, will you humble yourself and let the Lord refine you I think the scariest non-biblical quote that I can find, it captures the prideful and deceitful heart of man. It reads, the easiest thing is to deceive oneself. For what a man wishes, he generally believes to be true. And this is why you need trials and tribulations because your heart is deceitful. You can tell anyone, anyone you want until you're blue in the face that the Lord is your refuge. But until that day comes, you might be fooling yourself because it's what your heart wants to believe. So your trial might reveal that you have a heart that is far from God. A heart that would rather find refuge in mountains instead of the living God. Thankfully, God is merciful and kind, and He extends grace when you humble yourself for not trusting Him to be your refuge. And this is a privilege only reserved for the righteous because of Christ.
that sin of disbelief is placed at the cross of Christ, when you humble yourself before him, and if it happens again, if God presents another furnace of affliction and you fail that test again, humble yourself before the cross, laying it at the feet of Christ, your sin of unbelief. And grace and mercy will be extended to you again. He refines you because he loves you. And he wants you to be pure and spotless. The psalmist in 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Affliction is how you learn more about yourself and more about the true nature and character of God. Yeah, this is not a luxury that extends to the wicked because they refuse to humble themselves. Just like the attack of the wicked on the soul of David encapsulated the whole person of David, so is the Lord's hatred towards those who love violence. His soul hates it. It should be a humbling reminder of the Lord's hatred for the wicked. It permeates down to his soul as if to say the Lord hates it with every fiber of his being. The judgment upon the wicked will be swift just like that of Sodom and Gomorrah with raining coals down upon them. A portion of their cup will be fire and sulfur and scorching wind. A burn will spread to the deepest part of their soul. And it's humbling to look at that cup filled with fire and sulfur with that scorching wind. A smell that would sting your nostrils. And if Clamato gives you heartburn, I can't imagine the effects that it would have. Yet this cup is for the wicked. It is their judgment for their deeds. All the unrighteousness will be placed under the footstool of Christ. And this is the confidence of David. The unshakable reign of the Lord that he is unaffected and untouched by human plans. The Lord is righteous and will judge according all to their deeds. See, David does not have to fear man and the mutilation of the body that could occur by their hand because it is nothing compared to the judgment and the wrath of the Lord. A wrath that percolates fire consuming the soul of man. Just Judgments will be made. But does it humble you that this cup set before the wicked was also a cup intended for yourself? Yet it passed from your hand to the hand of Jesus Christ. If you look to Christ for your refuge from this fiery cup, 
he will drink every last drop until it's bone dry. You need not worry about the Lord's fiery wrath because Jesus Christ finished that cup for you when he was stretched out on the cross. But David also reveals another side of the Lord. He does not leave you with that impression that the Lord's up on his heavenly throne with a clipboard ticking off every unrighteous deed that has been done. But he says that the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. That the Lord is pleased when the righteous deeds are performed. He loves it when those who walk according to his commandments have a heart that loves to chew on the fruit of the Spirit. Who exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The one who uses their Christian freedom not to serve their flesh, but in love chooses to serve one another. Or who is not slothful in zeal, but serves the Lord. Those who are patient in their afflictions and choose prayer to endure it. Christians who are bearing with one another in their burdens and forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you and remove that cup of fiery wrath from your hand. He loves a heart that is not self-centered, looking at self-preservation, but understand that those who seek to save their life will lose it but those who are willing to lose their life for Christ's sake will find it. Where the upright will see their heart's desire, the face of their Savior and their God. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, refuge is not found in Christian isolation where you hide from the world, removing yourself completely, nor is it in Christian assimilation, where you hide from the world by acting more and more like the world. Both these options deny the Great Commission to go into all the world and also the opportunity to be salt and light in this dark, dark world. The Christian refuge is trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Knowing that He has done it all for you. And that you surrender yourself to His will knowing that it's His rule and reign over all of creation. And that you train your heart so that you're prepared if that question ever comes to you Should I stay or should I go? May you rightly forsake that mountain and choose to seek refuge in your Lord and in your King, even if it causes you to suffer for righteousness' sake. Amen. Let us pray.
O gracious God and Heavenly Father, who is there to fear in this, in this world and all of creation but you? That you are the one who can destroy body and soul. That just as you had you can, your words to create life, you also can just take it. But we know that you are also a God who loves righteous deeds. And that you look upon us in favor, not because of the works that we do, but most importantly because of the work of your only begotten Son. That he drank that cup of fiery wrath so we do not have to. But that we have the privilege to work in your kingdom. Not fearing the slandering, accusing mouth of man, but Father, may you continue to work in us the strength to look not to mountains and fortresses created by man, but to seek our refuge under your caring wing, because you are our God and our King. Give us strength to look to you and to find our refuge in you. It's through Christ's name we pray. Amen.